If you would turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. This evening we'll consider as much of the chapters we have time for under the title, Devotion to God Despite Godlessness. Devotion to God Despite Godlessness. In his introduction to his commentary on the book of Daniel, John Calvin, one of the reformers back in the, in the 16th century, writes this, I have the very best occasion of showing you, beloved brethren, in this mirror, how God proves the faith of his people in these days by various trials, and how with wonderful wisdom he has taken care to strengthen their minds by ancient examples. He's referring to his own day and how God gives his people, even through trials, ancient examples is what he calls them. That they should never be weakened by the concussion of the severest storms and tempests, or at least if they should totter at all, that they should never finally fall away. For although the servants of God are required to run in a course impeded by many obstacles, yet whoever diligently reads this book, the book of Daniel, will find in it whatever is needed by a voluntary and active runner to guide him from the starting point to the goal while good and strenuous wrestlers will experimentally acknowledge that they have been sufficiently prepared for the contest. Here then, we observe, as in a living picture, that when God spares and even indulges the wicked for a time, he proves his servants like gold and silver, so that we ought not to consider it a grievance to be thrown into the furnace of trial, while profane men Enjoy the calmness of repose. So part of what John Calvin was dealing with and part of what made the book of Daniel so helpful to him and helpful to the people that he was ministering to was that he was facing people who were godless. He was dealing in his day with a church that really was totally, uh, had totally thrown God off. They were persecuting the true people of God. That's why they were called reformers. They were seeking to reform uh, the right worship of God, reform the church in certain ways. And he's referring to the book of Daniel that God was giving wicked men indulgence for a time. God was not immediately punishing them, and wickedness was great in the earth. You think of uh, Assyria, you think of ne- uh, Babylon, the, and then the Medes and the Persians, godless, pagan uh, empires that ruled the known world. While much of the worship of God was totally absent. Why was God doing that? Well, when we read the rest of the Old Testament, we realize that was happening at a time when God was judging Israel. But there were still God's people who needed God's help at that time. They were in exile, and God gave them help. And you see that certainly in the, in the case of Daniel. You see it in many other cases. God preserved his remnant. But this is what made this... Uh, this book, the study of the book of Daniel, so helpful to John Calvin and his people, and why uh, many point out his uh, commentary in particular on the book of Daniel has drawn so much attention and has been so helpful and translated so many times throughout the ages because he drew so many parallels to his own day. And if you think, my point this this evening isn't really to start a whole series in the book of Daniel, but if you think about our own day, you realize how relevant this is to us too. Wickedness increases. 
there are many, many things in the world that are the product of godlessness. Um, I spent some time this last week, not really for this purpose, just writing out things that are going on in the world that could be a cause for fear in the people of God. And I got a list of, I don't know many, how many. It nearly fills up a screen. It's maybe 20 things that you see in the news, you hear about on a regular basis that are going on, and you wonder, who could be orchestrating all of this? Maybe if you're a conspiracy theorist, you're tempted to believe that, but I think we might miss the fact that believers are engaged in spiritual warfare. Who orchestrates all of this? Perhaps the prince of the power of the air, who would love to intimidate God's people and cause them to be fearful and forget to trust in the Lord. We are in a time of great wickedness, and I believe a book like Daniel can be a great help to us. As we see a young man who some have estimated at this point in Daniel chapter 1, he was probably between 15 and 17. So some of you teens, some of you who just had a birthday this week, between 15 and 17, this is a young man making choices to devote himself to God, even when no one else was. Matthew writes about uh, people's love will grow cold because sin increases, because wickedness increases in the earth. This is part of what's true in the end times. And don't you feel that? Just the soul-sapping effect of wickedness all around you? It's just like a wet blanket on a fire. But here we see in the example of a a young man like Daniel who had an extended ministry, well into his 90s, likely. And he was was, uh, blameless in his whole life. He, He wasn't perfect, but he was a man who devoted himself to God. And importantly, he did this from a young age. He did it in very small things, things that probably no one would have noticed, but things that ended up setting him up for great success in God's eyes. And a big theme in the book of Daniel, as I was reading this last week, it was occurring to me, particularly the first few chapters, uh, is the the truth that Yahweh, the God of Israel, the living God, he is sovereign over all kings and gods and nations. And the particular help of this book is to help God's people live holy lives amid an ungodly world. And that's why I've titled this, sermon this evening, Devotion to God Despite Godlessness, because that's particularly apparent in this first chapter of Daniel. I think the the truth that we can take from this, from the example of Daniel as a young man refusing to eat the king's meat, you know the story, is that God blesses those who are devoted to him. God blesses those who are devoted to him. And I'm using the word bless in the sense of Psalm 1. How blessed is that man? who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sits in the way of sinners, nor stands, uh, stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scorn, the scornful, but his delight, like Daniel's, was it, is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. And then you see how fruitful he is and how enduring he is, much like Daniel. I believe Daniel is a, a living example of that psalm. And no doubt this was a psalm that he knew. If I say the word David, this, uh, say the name David this evening, uh, Please forgive me. No, I'm talking about Daniel. But he he would have known King David's psalms. Those were his hymn book growing up, right? He knew that one, that, that title psalm, and he wanted to live it. And as a young man, he was devoted to that. God blesses those who are devoted to him. Let's read the chapter, and as we read, 
You'll notice in the first seven verses the, the wicked environment in which David lived. There it is. In which Daniel lived. Thank you for understanding. The wicked environment in which Daniel lived in the first seven verses. And then the fear of God, which Daniel maintained in verses 8 through 13. And then finally, the advantages which Daniel gained with God's help. So let's read Daniel chapter 1 together. In the, year, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them were the, from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And then the commander of these officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials, and the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, their appearance, appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had e uh, been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink, and kept giving them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus, the king. This is the word of the Lord. So you see first, 
the wicked environment in which Daniel lived. Verses 1 and 2, just kind of this brief overview of a huge chunk of Israel's history. When Nebuchadnezzar was coming to, to Jerusalem on three different occasions, 605 B.C., 597 B.C., and then finally the, the total fall of Jerusalem in 586. He came three times, but why was this happening? It was because Daniel lived in a time of societal deterioration. His, his whole society was deteriorating. Israel was weak internationally. If we turned to some of the other the kings and chronicles, we could look at how Pharaoh was coming through and taking out a king and putting in a king. He was the one who installed Jehoiakim. They were weak. They weren't sovereign on their own like they had been under David and Solomon and some of the other good kings. But Israel was a godless society. This is why this was happening. God was punishing them because they had refused to repent of their idolatry. And if David's just 15 years old, he's grown up in this. He's grown up under a slew of wicked kings. And this is after the northern tribes of Israel had been conquered. They should have taken great warning, but they hadn't. They continued in their idolatry. His society was crumbling. And Israel was experiencing God's wrath. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. This is likely in 605, the first one. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim. God was punishing them. They were under God's wrath. If you turn over to Daniel 2, verse 21, Daniel says later in his life, after a dream is revealed to him, God is the revealer of mysteries. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. He removes kings. He establishes kings. Nebuchadnezzar was besieging the city. His soldiers did the work of looting the city. But God was removing kings. God was deposing this king. He was punishing his people. Daniel had seen this exact thing as a young man, that God does exactly what he pleases with the rulers of the earth. This was the state of Israel when he was living. This was the state of Israel's rulers. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, would become a very famous example of God removing a king just by removing his reason, sending him out to eat with the cattle, right? This is what God is doing in Israel. But Daniel's living in a time when his whole society is deteriorating. Apparently, he had a good upbringing, well-educated in the law, but he was also subject to political coercion. He's a subject of national exile. In verse 3, the king ordered him, this, this uh, chief of the officials, to take along some of these youths, some of the choice youths. When they sacked the city and looted the temple, they took political prisoners too, you could say. They took these young men into exile. And of course, God's judgment was on all Israel, but you'd have to say that some of these young people probably weren't really that responsible for what was happening. They were kind of victims of the sins of other people. Of course, they were, there's plenty of collateral damage when we sin. But they got relocated. They were removed from their homes and their families. They were brought to an unfamiliar place in an unfamiliar setting for the purpose of political advancement. He's looking for the good-looking ones, the smart ones, the ones who can improve the wisdom of his court. He's trying to build a kingdom by looting all the other kingdoms of the best that they had so he could take over the world. 
He's living in a time of when his society was deteriorating, when he was being coerced, he was just kind of being bounced around politically. And then they were trying to subvert his cultural influences. The, the, the manner of Babylonian takeover was different than the Medes and Persians. When you come to the later times when uh, Esther, when you read Esther and Nehemiah and Ezra and the kings of Medo-Persia are allowing them to go back and reestablish their worship, if you study world history, you learn that the habit of the Medes and the Persians was to allow the people to maintain their own cultural identity. That was a way that they were trying to maintain peace in all of their realms. But what the Babylonians did was the complete opposite. They tried to brainwash all the peoples that they conquered. They tried to make them all Babylonians. And you see that happening here for Daniel. They were trying to naturalize them. They were trying to erase the Jewish ways of operating, just like they had done with all the other kingdoms that they had conquered. Trying to eliminate their, their language, their religion, their cultural habits, the things that tie them to where they were from. And of course that started with their heart language. He wanted them to teach these young men, you see in verse, the end of verse 4, literature and language of the Chaldeans. They're trying to brainwash them, to get them to think in completely different categories than the categories of the Psalms, the categories of God's law. They wanted them to think in terms of, who knows, Babylonian mythology, Babylonian art, Babylonian values, Babylonian terms. They were striking at the very core of who these young men were. And they were trying to undermine their, their religion, their culture, their language, even erasing their identity. They changed their names. You see by their names, Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah, you see that, that uh, suffix on the end of his name. It's the name of God. Yahweh is gracious. Jehovah is gracious as Hananiah. Mishael, who is like God. Azariah. Yahweh is my helper. Jehovah is my helper. The, even their names reminded them from where they were from, from. But part of the brainwashing program that they had in uh, Babylon was to change these men's names and make them refer to the Babylonian gods. Uh, I don't remember the names of them. Akar and I think Nego is one of them. Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They were trying to erase everything. This is the time that David lived. It was Daniel lived. It was godless. It was godless from where he was from to where he was going. I believe there's a lesson here at the very beginning that our environment does not determine our outcome, does it? In the world of education, if you're in that world, no doubt you encounter this. Is it uh, nurture versus nature? How much of what you become is pre-programmed? How much of it is your environment growing up, your influences? Well, environment is not nothing. It does shape us. Scripture is clear about that, but it's not everything. Our heart, our own decisions, we have a will by which we can serve God or by which we can damn ourselves to hell. And a heart that fears God can overcome circumstances that would, that would crush any of the influences that we've had. Daniel is certainly an example of that. But we also see here that very clearly God is the ruler over kings and nations. It's really striking through the first several chapters to read of what Daniel and his friends were learning about their God. 
It's not made so explicit here in this chapter, but if you read chapters 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, there's, there are big theological truths that are coming out in the next chapter, several chapters. God is the revealer of mysteries. He changes times and epochs. He sets up kings and removes kings. These young men are learning this on the fly in the heat of the battle. But it's also striking how these truths keep coming closer and closer and closer to Nebuchadnezzar himself. God is exposing this proud king to the truths about himself. This proud king who thinks that when he destroys the worship of a nation, he's defeated their God. That's very significant when he takes these things out of the temple to his own temple. I won. I won. Who is your God to oppose me? Well, what is God teaching Nebuchadnezzar here? even through these young men in kind of a seedling form in chapter 1, that God, the living God, Yahweh, is ruler over kings and nations. It's as if God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to realize that he was still on the throne. Who's in charge at all times? God is doesn't matter what a ruler says, what a, what a king, what a president, what a dictator says, or what he thinks, or how he acts, how arrogantly he acts. God is still on his throne, isn't he? He's never hurried off of it. He's never jostled out of position. God is on his throne. And sometimes when we see a wickedness at repose, like John Calvin said, that can be really unsettling to us. God is not unsettled by wickedness. He's on his throne. He's using it for a purpose, and we should keep that in mind. Because otherwise, we get ourselves tied all in knots for how, did, how, did, how has that person been a career politician? Have you ever thought that? How has that person been a career politician? You think God might have put him there? We need to think in a godly way because God is always on his throne and we can trust him. We must trust him and we must fear him. But you see in the next few verses the fear of God which Daniel maintained in this environment. This is the key verse of the chapter, I believe. Daniel made up his mind. He made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. Daniel feared God more than he feared the king, didn't he? You see in the next verse that this person over him feared the king a lot. And the king was fearful. He had a lot of authority. But Daniel feared God more than he feared the king. He made a choice. He established something in his heart. He arranged his heart a certain way. He, he ordered his will to operate upon a certain principle which he had learned from his youth. And this is a really hopeful phrase, isn't it? Because there were many, there were many, many, many things that were happening to Daniel that he had no control over. He couldn't control what his home country was doing. He couldn't control what the wicked king of Israel was doing. He couldn't control the judgment of God. He couldn't control the king of Babylon or the captivity he was taken into or the education he received or the new name that he was given. There was a whole lot in his life that he could not control. But what did David do? Daniel do? He made up his mind. He decided in his heart he determined that he would not defile himself. He wanted to remain pure. He had devoted himself to God. And this is made even more extraordinary, we were actually talking this morning, by the fact that the temple observance of 
Old Testament religion was done. There was no more temple worship. Not that there was a lot of it anyway, because the people were so far from God. But now they've been looted, and temple things have been taken out of the temple. There's no more worship going on back in his home country. The external forms of worship were no longer in place in Daniel's life. He wasn't around all his Jewish friends who had helped him live a, a godly life while he was a boy. He's probably not around his parents. Apparently a lot of his peers are, are eating this food. There's a lot of momentum in the direction of doing this thing because who cares? You know, It's not a big deal. Yet he wanted to remain pure to God. He had decided in his heart. You'll remember the, the many dietary restrictions that the Jews observed. And there's no mention here specifically of what's offered beside the king's choice food. <clears throat> there were many things that Jews couldn't eat, shouldn't eat for reasons of, of ritual purity before God that Daniel would not have eaten growing up. But there are also verses like Psalm 141, verse 4, that no doubt Daniel would have known having sung it many times. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing, to practice deeds of wickedness with men who do iniquity, and do not let me eat of their delicacies. Daniel was applying principles that he had learned all his life, and he wanted to please God. Of course, that required him to do a hard thing. He had to approach, he had to actually ask, approach, the one who had changed his name to ask for permission to have a different diet. The one who was responsible for the brainwashing program, he had to ask him, can I not eat this? Can I have something different? And God gave him favor. Because that's what God does. If we ever have favor, it's from God. You certainly see that. In a book like Esther, where God isn't mentioned by name, but Esther is receiving favor upon favor upon favor. Where is this coming from? It's from God. God did it to Daniel. God did it to Esther. God did it many, many other times. Verse 9, God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. He shares this fear with him. He showed him favor, even though it could cost him his life. That's a lot of favor. And Daniel hears these reservations that he has comes up with this, this, I think we'd say, a reasonable solution that helps the man deal with, with these fears in a pretty objective way. He asked the overseer to make a, a, a just judgment based on actual facts. Even now, as a young man, you see uh, Daniel's um, ability to make just judgments. He's got some wisdom about him. And he's very tactful when he addresses him. And this test that he proposes really is a, a step of faith, isn't it? He doesn't know what's going to happen if he doesn't look better. He doesn't know how this is going to turn out. He's trusting the Lord by faith that this will work out in a way that would honor the Lord, that he could stick to his guns and maintain a clean conscience. One pastor said about this that it's in the small matters that great victories are won. This is where decisions to live a holy life are made. Not in the big things, though they, they come if the little things are neglected, but in the details of life. We want to live a life devoted to God, right? Many of us have that desire. Are you willing to make that decision in small things that nobody else notices? 
That's where Daniel is making this decision. And again, if we're going to make application of this, we certainly learn that God always deserves our worship, even when no one else is watching, even when no one else is worshiping God. Perhaps when everybody around us is approving of you not being devoted to God, even when the external forms of worship are taken away, But we also learned that devotion to God requires commitment, requires a decision of our heart, of our will, to maintain purity before God, no matter what the cost. This isn't something that we just happen upon. It's something that we actually have to decide and resolve. This is a conviction born of the fear of God. Exemplified by a psalm like Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who walks not, who stands not, who sits not. He's making a decision not to do certain things so that he can devote himself to God. And of course, he's guided by the law of God, as Daniel would have been. But then you notice in the end of the chapter the advantages which Daniel and his friends gained. Certainly by the blessing of God, they, were, they became exceptional. In their appearance, they, this little test runs its course over 10 days, and they, they appeared better than the ones who were eating the other diet, so they get their way. They get to eat the vegetables and the water. They were exceptional in their education, verse 17. God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Did you ever have a strong subject in school? Maybe you were really good at math. Maybe you were really good at English, like you never had to study for anything, and you were one of those people. Daniel knew everything. He was that guy. God gave him a lot of favor. God advanced him in his education. They were exceptional in their character and their conduct, even their trustworthiness. You see this as they meet the king. They're presented to the king. He talks with them. He has interactions with them. He, He learns their speech. They're probably speaking in a language not their own. They're very advanced in this. They have, they're persuasive. They're well-conducted there. And then he invites them into his personal service, the end of verse 19. There was no one found like these four men. They were exceptional. They had a good amount of capability, even beyond those who were well-seasoned in their craft, verse 20. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the conjurers who were in all his realm. They just had an exceptional kind of wisdom. Certainly, this is a testimony again to King Nebuchadnezzar of the wisdom of God and the fact that God was still alive because your law makes me wiser than my enemies, David said. And Daniel was experiencing this. He was wiser than all of these pagans around him because he knew the living God. And he became exceptional Daniel, especially for his longevity, he continued, verse 21, until the first year of Cyrus, the king. He ministered probably well into his 90s. That's a career of probably 70-plus years. That's remarkable. That is remarkable. He was faithful all through it. So, of course, we're not guaranteed these specific blessings of, you know, whatever the Babylonians approved of as a good appearance and you know, being really smart in school and all of these particular things. But we should note that these blessings are blessings from God. 
And that's why I said at the beginning that God blesses those who are devoted to him. And I think the rest of the book bears out that God uses those who are devoted to him. God is in charge of all of these things, and he bestowed them specifically in those who feared him, in the case of these four young men. So just as we close, for our encouragement, I I would remind you, remind all of us, even just from the first chapter, and the rest of the book bears this out, but God is sovereign. When you think about this and you apply it to when you go and click on the news in the morning, God is sovereign. This can be a great comfort to us. You learn from this first chapter, God is sovereign over geopolitical events outside our control, as he was with Daniel. God is sovereign over your circumstances, as he was with Daniel. The lot in life that you have, heartaches and all. God is sovereign over your gifts and your abilities and your natural capacity for achievement. Maybe you've heard it said, school's not for everybody. Some people learn in very different ways, right? God is sovereign over what he's given you in your own abilities. And he can still use you. God is sovereign over people and outcomes, especially as it regards favor towards those who are opposed to the things of God. God is sovereign over them. God is always on the throne. Even when kings and nations like Nebuchadnezzar think they've dethroned him, or they think they are sovereign and they can just rule without any accountability, they can do whatever they want. It's the God of Israel who made these Hebrew boys succeed. And they became a source of very specific knowledge about God to this very proud king. God is sovereign and God rewards. God rewards those. He blesses those who are devoted to him. How blessed. That's how the, psal- the Psalms open. How blessed is that man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. So when there's godlessness all around, and there is, isn't there? There is. We all have a choice to make. Will we be devoted to God or will we not? Will we compromise? We have a wonderful example here in a young man, probably 15, 17. A wonderful example in the young men of Daniel and his friends. And as we, as we seek to live holy lives in an ungodly world, these can serve to encourage us, I trust. Not, not only that someone else has done it before, it can be done with God's help, but also how to do it. We can learn from their, their example how to do so. And as our convictions, like Daniel's, are are formed by Scripture, may the Lord help us to be devoted to him for his glory and by his grace for our blessing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do put uh, flesh and blood to the teaching of your word. And there have been many, uh, you might call them heroes of the faith, who have gone before, none certainly greater than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that you do empower your people. Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they were, they were sinful people. They were young men with, with sinful flesh in them. But they truly had hearts for you. And they maintained that conviction. 
and they remain devoted to you and you use them in a mighty way. Lord, who knows what you would do through just a few who make a similar choice. No matter how old we are, how many times we've gotten it wrong, you are forgiving God and you still bless those who honor you. And we thank you for that. We don't deserve rewards, but we thank you that you notice and uh, you're pleased. Pray that you'd help us to please you in our lives. Bless us as we go this week. Pray that you would bless the food that we're about to eat in a few minutes to our bodies. We thank you for the time that we can celebrate with the garlands. We pray that you would bless them and help them in their move in this next week. Give them safety and help in getting all the things lined up in their new house. Pray that materials would come in quickly and uh, they'd be able to get things all situated. And bless them in their new the new step that you have for them in ministering to various family members and becoming reacquainted with old friends there where they've, where they've moved from. Thank you for their, the blessing that you've allowed them to be here and the, the way that they've served and loved here. Um, Lord, we pray that you would bless them. Bless us as we go this week. Help us to walk with you and to live worthy of you. We pray this all in Christ's name.